I'm going to read chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, and it is titled, Disorder in the Church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, and with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread, without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. If you're looking, thinking, why in the world would he do 1 Corinthians 5? It's only because I'm a simple man. I had it planned long ago that if I ever preached, I would do Corinthians, and I'm just working each chapter on by, and I'll remind you every time. We've done one, we've done two, three, four, and we just find ourselves at chapter five. It's not intentional on my part, it's just, I'm just going to work my way through. So each Sunday it goes by that I get to preach, next time will be 1 Corinthians 6. It'll be no surprise. That way I don't have to think as well. It's not like, oh, what would I like to say? It's the text forces the issue. I don't have to hide, which is good. As a, as a preacher, when you're going through, you can't hide from the text. What the scripture says, we have to deal with this issue. So I don't get to put my feelings into the moment where I insert my feelings into the text. I have to deal with the context and then give out what the lesson is. So it's, it's good to go through a book every now and then, and that kind of keeps in line with the thinking that Paul has in Galatians 1, where he says, you know, if I were just kind of doing it for the approval of man, 
I would do it this way, but I'm seeking the approval of God, so I'm going this way. And based on this reading today, am I seeking the approval of man or God? We, we shall find out. But if I was looking for the approval of man, I would skip it entirely because it's easier. But for the sake of the king, we go into today's passage. We are in first century Rome a great kingdom at this point. And Corinth is kind of placed in there where you're coming down and you're in Greece and then it has a little shoot over and then there's another island. It's kind of like a dumbbell. You know, you're holding the handle of a dumbbell. That's the skinny part of it. And it's a port city. So boats are coming in. It draws different types of people, different types of cultures. You have people from the north, from the west, the east, east and south. They're coming in and they're meeting here, which the mix is good, but with that plurality, it brings a lot of wickedness. But in this same city, Paul, we read in Acts 17, 18, he arrives and he preaches the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They establish a church there, and Paul stays there for one year, six months, And he's teaching the word of God among them. So with this new church that's established, Paul goes away. He gets a report on some issues that are going on here. The first two, three chapters, we deal with the issue of divisions. I prefer this teacher. I prefer this teacher. I want this guy. This guy doesn't even know what he's talking about. That's the first big issue he addresses. Today, we get the second big issue. And it's a couple of sins that go kind of hand in hand here. Namely, the first is obvious, the immorality. The second is arrogance. So in verse 1, we see it is reported there is a man having his father's wife. This act of incest is so bad that the outside culture looks and even says, ugh, that's gross. And in Corinth, which... This city is known for its licentiousness behavior, which means they have a lack of regard for any moral restraint or any sexual restraint. So when the outside community looks in at the church and goes, we won't do that, you know something's off. But we know that we don't look to culture for our guide, but we can see that if they're disgusted, maybe we need to reconsider some things here. We turn to the scriptures as our guide on how to live. And we know that it says this is wrong. You get it in, I think it's Leviticus, that it says it is wrong for a man to have sexual relations with his father's wife. That would dishonor your father, which we know dishonoring mom and dad is the fifth of the Ten Commandments. So Paul knows the scriptures. He knows it speaks of this wickedness. And in verse 2, he gives them another problem. You are arrogant. He says, ought you rather not mourn? Shouldn't you be sad over what's taking place here? Why would the church look at this with a smile, boast about it, or even just say, "Uh, we don't really talk about it. They sweep it under the rug. The Lord will not tolerate this. These words should ring loud and clear for us today. First, we should be mourning the state of the church that we're in right now. Not just anger, 
but mourning. It is sad what is happening to the church, that we tolerate sin in many forms. And why should we mourn? It's not just a human-to-human level of sin that we look and we say, oh, well, it's just affecting him and me, so why are you worried about our business? Well, it's mourning the Lord, the King, the one who gives us life. He is very God, and he is grieved by our sins and our actions. That we would grieve our Lord, the Savior that takes our sins, that's another reason to be very upset about what's going on. We could be like David, and in Psalm 51, after he's caught in action with Bathsheba, has her husband killed because he wants to cover up his sin, Nathan the prophet calls him out and says, you're the man, David, you did all this wickedness. And David in Psalm 51, he writes this, Against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's the attitude of the church when we have sins exposed. Admitting our error, asking the Lord to forgive us, and turning away from that error. But that's not what we get in the text here. We get the exact opposite. They are arrogant. It is set into the Corinthian church, this arrogance. So what is arrogance? It is the offensive display of superiority or of self-importance and overbearing pride. That's kind of like the same sin that Adam and Eve had in the garden. Who's king? Well, if we eat the fruit, we're not going to die. That's what this guy says, and we believe this rather than what the king told us. Don't eat the fruit or you will die. So we took the self as king instead of God as king. And Paul is right to call them out on this arrogance and pride. Note this though, he doesn't name names. Now, in that moment, he didn't have to name names. You knew who it was. They knew who it was in the church, but we don't. But he tells them to do one thing, remove him from the fellowship of the church. So we get in verses 3 to 5, Paul shows his authority here, and he says, remove this man from the church. Why should he go? Isn't, Isn't the church where healing should be, where we bring people in? Isn't this a hospital, as some have argued in our own very day? Yeah, it is a church. It is a, I mean, church is a place where healing happens, and it is a hospital, But that only goes to a limit. Only one can be healed and go to a hospital if one's willing to admit one has a problem or a sickness that needs a remedy. If you claim to be healthy, you don't need a doctor. I know plenty of times on my own self, I say, I'm fine. I don't need to go to a doctor. And about three or four hours later, there was a time I messed my hand up at work, and about four, four hours later after getting home, Amber said, don't you think you should go to the ER? Uh, yeah, probably, but I'm not gonna. Our pride sets us back. So the one who does not admit the error or does not turn away from their sin We dismiss from the congregations in the hopes that they might be saved. It's not just doing it to do it. 
We hope that they are saved. See, Paul says in verse 5, Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, God is merciful and kind, not willing that any should perish. So, this punishment is for his good. We have a hopeful end to it. Right now, pain. Goal, glory. We want him restored into the church as a new man. So that's, the goal is this, not to cast him out and just say, go away, we never want to see you again. It's, we want you to come back whole and in fellowship. And if you're a parent, you understand this full well. How many times do you say, go to your room? And that's for our needing a break from the child, but it's also because the kid has done something wrong and needs correction. Go to your room. We will talk in a minute. Think about what you did. And then you hope that they break and they say, I'm so sorry. And then they come back down and then they stop doing it. And if you come to the Shirk household, you'll find that's not always the case. (laughs) But just like the father who waits for his prodigal son to come back, he's watching. You know, you read the story. He's watching, waiting for his son to come back. His son has left him for wicked living. The father's holding in a lot of pain. He's thinking, when will my son come home? I can't wait for my son to come home. And then finally, the son has that moment where he realizes, oh, I've sinned against my father, and I've sinned against the Lord, and I want to go back because even a slave is better at my father's house than my current state. So we want all family members and friends to know this truth. That the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, the one who sees everything, who knows everything, that he's completely just and completely loving. That this God will forgive our sins through one name, Jesus Christ. That Jesus takes our sins, past, present, future, and he bears the burden of it taking God's punishment on that sin. He dies the death we deserve. Three days later, he rises and he gives new life to those who believe. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see my sin. He sees his son's righteousness clothed on me. So that's the goal in sending the man away. The goal is repentance. And we pray it so. But what, what happens on the flip side? What if we continue in our pride? Well, then Paul in verse 6, he kind of points to them. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If we do nothing, sin will take over. What was once good is now destroyed. So the, the analogy Paul uses here is bread. Once you put a little leaven in bread, you can't unleaven the bread. It spreads all the way through. To the readers, they understood this concept. I was thinking about what current concept we had in our county, and the only one I could come up with, but it, it falls a bit short, was, you know when the farmer spreads his manure? You would think it would be fine if the smell just stayed on his field. 
But it doesn't. It just spreads throughout the whole county that there's a good two, three days of funk that cloud the county. But the only problem is the flip side of that is good. So it produces fruit, whereas I don't, I don't want to lead a bad analogy there, but I, the concept was that it spreads and you can't get it away. So the pride spreads to the readers, they understand this bread concept. A lot of times they talked about leaving was a metaphor for corrupting influence. It spreads until it's everywhere. So if you continue in this approval of sin, it leads to destruction. But this is the best part. It doesn't just stop with don't and this is bad and knock it off. We get Paul always brings it back home to the gospel. You get verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The cleansing is to make new or purify. And that's what's stated here. He's reminding him this. Christ has made us pure. The old leaven is our sin. The previous life we lived. The old me. The the once I was blind, but now I see moment. We're a new lump in Christ, and as a new lump, we are holy. I find this note from a guy named Charles Hodge helpful, and he writes this about this verse 7. When the Passover lamb was slain, the Hebrews were required to purge out all the leaven from their homes. The death of Christ imposes a similar obligation on us to purge out the leaven of sin. Christ is our Passover, not because he was slain on the day on which the lamb was offered, but because he does for us what the lamb did for the Hebrews. As the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorpost secured exemption from the stroke of the destroying angel, so the blood of Christ secures exemption from the stroke of God's divine justice. Christ was slain for us in the same sense that the Passover lamb was slain for the Hebrews. See, I find that so helpful because it reminds me straight in the middle of this, oh my goodness, moment of wickedness, we get back to the heart of the message. The heart of the message is the gospel. He reminds the Corinthian church, since you are God's people. Do not forget that you are holy, blood-bought by the Lamb. Because that's how we guide ourselves in living. We see that the, that the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. So in verse 8, he says, Let us celebrate the festival. Since Christ is the Passover Lamb, we keep the festival. It's a metaphor here for living in holiness, to continue that living. So during the Passover festival, the people would be set apart to consecration or dedication to God. So it's the same for the Christian. We're now living in a full length of festival. Our whole lives are a festival that they would be set apart in devotion to God. And that old leaving would not be present that old leaven of malice, evil, wickedness. That is, our former lives that were bent on doing wrong and doing wrong 
and doing it again and doing it again and with joy. Disobedience with joy. That was the old us. All the while, a just and holy God is watching. See, this is the terrifying thought for those that are doing wrong, that God is holy and just. But to us, who are celebrating the festival with this new bread of sincerity and truth, this holy and just God has shown us mercy and love and forgiveness in his Son. So we celebrate the feast with joy, gladness, peace. Now, if you find yourself wondering, which side am I on? Let's get some assurance here. Seek the Lord, find his forgiveness, and then you can celebrate the feast with the same joy that the rest of Christians that we get to experience. And then in verse 9, Paul states a little, a little subnote here. He says, in my letter, which we all have pretty much agreed that that letter is a letter we don't know about, but was indeed written. So does it mean that parts of the word of God are missing here? Now, we, we think that or believe and trust that God has given us exactly what he wants us to have. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. He has given the words to us that we need to get to his plan of salvation. It's laid out perfectly. There's probably worthy to note that many of the disciples, apostles, have written notes in answers. You know, someone has a question, oh, well, let's ask Peter what he thinks. Well, Peter has two letters. He's probably wrote a bunch more, but those were the ones that we get in his letters that stayed in the scripts. So we're not worried on letters that went missing. It was probably something just on policy, and here he reiterates the point. In my letter that you get, I said this. So we already know what was in that letter anyways. But we trust that our Bible is complete, and we are content in it. So he says, do not associate with those that are sexually immoral. And we notice he kind of continues it in verse 10. He kind of gives like, you know, the asterisk on the moment because he says, well, not meaning the ones in the world, because then you would have to leave the world, which nowadays doesn't sound too far-fetched. You keep hearing people, well, we're going to have life on Mars in the next 15 years. Good luck. Sin will still follow you there. The reference he has here is to those who are inside the church, the ones that claim to have the faith once handed down from the saints, and yet they so openly defy it. So he rephrases it all in verse 11. Do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't eat with such a one. So what's Paul getting at here? Is this like the excommunication that our Amish neighbors do? You know where they, they shun the people? On the surface, and if you're not reading it deep enough, or if you want to look for a point to win a, an argument, you could go that way, but after careful study, this is what we find. In the early church... They would meet and have meals after meals and gather as a church. In that moment is when they say, 
the person shall not come. It's not saying, cut them off, don't talk to them anymore. It's like I never had a son. It's not like that. It's different. It's just on the inside social interaction of the church. And why do I come to that conclusion? It's pretty simple. Jesus ate with sinners, so if we're going to draw the line there, we're contradicting what Jesus has done. So we know the interaction is there. It's just inside the church. Because we also know this. The Lord went to the Gentiles, which many of us are. We know the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah goes to the widow that's not a Jew. Rahab the spy, she was a prostitute, not Jewish either. Naaman, King Naaman, dipped in the river seven times. He was a Gentile king. And my favorite, the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, conversing with Jesus. So we have the social interaction there. We don't shun them. It's just inside the church that the person is not welcome at. I know that's harsh, but in our day, we have to remember that the goal is repentance and life in Christ. Our motive is not a motive for bad. It's for good, and it should be motivated by love. Hey, man, I I don't like what you're doing here. I need to see what's going on. What's behind the heart of the issue of what you're doing? I want to see you grow in your faith, not turn away. So we have to be very nimble in how we approach it. But we have to go in with a motive of love and good. And if we don't have that, maybe we need to have someone else help us get there. Also, we're calling them back constantly. Hey, brother, this is not right. Brother, this is not good. I want you to come back. Come back to the faith. I'm begging you, come back. So it's a mourning situation. So for churches that you get to see that handle church discipline, excommunication is the very, 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 very last step. And it only comes after pleas for change. Please change. So Paul, in verses 12 and 13, he sums it up. What do I have to do with judging the outside? God judges the outside. Purge the evil among you. That last line's from Deuteronomy 17.7. If you want to have that in your little notes, where it's the same thing. Get rid of what's bothering the inside. Clean up on the inside. So our inside church should be clean and without sin from its members. The outside of the church, they're expected to be the way they are because they don't care about following the ways of the Lord, which I find comfort in this, that God will judge the outside. It's not our job. We have the inside and we're growing and there's a way to treat the outside world. And the reason is this. I was once one of them. I was the outsider. I needed God's grace and mercy. I needed to hear the good news that Jesus was the Savior of the world, that he could take my life and turn it upside down. So then our actions are to be like this toward the outside world. We look past their actions, what they're doing, what they're saying, and we aim our arrow right at the heart. We want to pierce the heart 
to get them to see their wicked ways and turn to the Lord. We have to have compassion on them. Otherwise, they'll never know that the church is a loving people. We need them to see God's love through us. So for us inside, expectation is holy living. So then what then of visitors? How do we deal with this? Someone off the street comes in. What do we do about the visitors? Must they change right straight away to walk in our door? No. At least in my opinion, Paul doesn't get that question directly. But through other scriptures, I can kind of infer an answer here. And the answer I could come up with this. When they come in, it's fine. They're a guest. No obligation. Once they take up positions that they want to advance in the church, then we have to do like what they did to Paul and question him. So the report at the time in the first century was there's this guy, Saul of Tarsus, that is a persecutor of the church. But rumor has it that the Lord spoke to him. And the disciples were all like, oh, this is kind of scary. This guy, maybe he's kind of like faking it, like Trojan horse. He comes in and then we're dead men. So what do we do? We bring him in. They question him. And at the end, they give their approval of Paul. So I kind of infer that from the text, that those who are visitors are welcome to come as they are in their current state. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It's our job to make sure they know the good news of Jesus and that they're loved here. It's right to make sure that those in the church are following the faith, loving the Lord, and loving their neighbor. So then, in in light of all these things, how do we live? First, let's not be arrogant. I've never heard that word used in a positive light on a single person, and it's not to be found in us. But we're sinners, It's the great phrase that that Luther always talks about. The same time we are just and sinner. So when we are arrogant, let us see it, repent of it, and then change and ask the Lord to bless us to be humble. We can do this if we are reading our Bibles, fellowshipping with other believers, attending church regularly, and praying the Spirit would lead us and not relying on ourselves. So second, if we see sin in the church, we call it out. Or we, we do it the way that Matthew 18 has it laid out. There's some guidance there. Go one-on-one. Ask them what they meant. If, they, if you don't agree, get someone else in to kind of help understand. And then if it's more, you work your way up. It's not just to clean the church to clean the church. It's not just like, oh, it's a Saturday. It's time to clean the house. Let's just get rid of these people because we're tired of them. It's bringing everyone into the fold, helping everyone grow in God's grace. We're accountable to each other. I'm accountable to you. You're accountable to me. We're helping each other grow. It's unloving to leave someone as they are and say, nah, you don't need to do anything different. You're fine just as you are. Go ahead. Biblical love's We want to see the well-being of each other. We want to grow in the grace of the Lord. And third, this is the hardest. For those in our lives, and I have a few, that have gone astray, we don't lose hope. We're instead to remain hopeful that the Lord will redeem the person 
and convict them by his spirit and that they will come back just like the prodigal son. And the pain that's involved in that is immense. When you see a friend walk away, denying the faith he once grasped so well, it's painful on the inside and you carry that weight so as the church, we're to bear each other's burdens. So we're all praying for those that have walked away that they would come home. We are to be persistent in this prayer to not give up. And we want them to come back in full fellowship. Love is the motive. With all that, let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, you have given us your Son who took our sins And we praise your great name for that. We thank you for your word. And we pray that what is good and right in this, you will apply to our hearts, that we can be a light for those living in darkness. For those that have made a shipwreck of their faith, we pray you bring them home. We pray they've been changed by your spirit and that you would convict them of their sins and that someone in their life around them would help guide them back. But we thank you for the eternal festival that we have in your son, Jesus, that our lives are held apart by you as holy. And I pray for our lives that they would be full of sincerity and truth. By your spirit, lead us to growth and mature us into the ones that can love the unlovable. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.